Acts chapter 25 is where we're starting. It's not where we're finishing. But grab a Bible because we don't have slides this morning. Fall Fest 8, just a little bit too much of the weekend. Something had to give and that was it. Acts 25. If you need a Bible, wave and we'll get you one. I was talking to somebody this week about these chapters in Acts 23, 24, 25, 26. And they said, oh yeah, those are, those are like the filler episodes of the book of Acts. I said, filler episodes, what's a, what's, a, what's a filler episode? You know, when your favorite TV show runs out of money towards the end of the season, or they just don't have the creativity to do anything interesting with the characters they've created, they just write an episode, and it just fills an hour. It's a filler episode. Doesn't develop the character or you know advance the, the story arc of the season. It just occupies space. Filler episode. Learn something new every day. I don't know that God does filler episodes, is the thing. I mean, when we left off last week, Paul, yes, was in a holding pattern, and he stayed in that holding pattern, in that, in that parking orbit, for two years. Two years during which, as far as we know, there wasn't any dramatic ministry going on. But that's as far as we know. We said last week, we don't know what we don't know. We don't know what purpose God had behind the scenes. We just know that he had one, because God doesn't do anything without a purpose. And he didn't give us these chapters, slow-moving though they might seem. He didn't give us these chapters without a purpose. The Holy Spirit included them in Scripture, even if the purpose isn't obvious. So let's scratch around chapter 25 a little bit and see if we can discover a purpose or two, a blessing or two in this filler episode. When we left off at the end of chapter 24, Paul was being held in the governor's residence in Caesarea by the sea. For two years, he existed in sort of a, a legal no-man's land. He wasn't guilty of anything under Roman law, but neither was Felix inclined to let him go. He was unwilling, Felix was unwilling to provoke the Jewish leaders by setting free someone that they clearly wanted dead. And when Felix was recalled to Rome, when he was transferred out of his role as governor, to, to face charges of being cruel and unjust and brutal to the Jewish people, he was that much less inclined to do anything that the Jewish people might find objectionable. They had already cost him his job. He didn't want them to complain further and maybe cost him his life. So 60 AD, when Festus takes over as governor, he finds Paul there confined to the palace. 25 verse 1. When Festus had come to the province, when he arrived to, to take his office, after three days he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Caesarea is north of Jerusalem, but remember in Scripture we always go up to Jerusalem. It's a city on a hill. So Festus goes south up to Jerusalem, and he goes there almost immediately because even though the governor's residence was in Caesarea, Jerusalem was the real seat of power. It was the center of gravity for obvious reasons. So he's not going to waste time. He's going to get to know the movers and the shakers of the people that he's responsible for leading. And then the high priest, verse 2, and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul. They told Festus about this guy, Paul, that he, was, uh, he, had, he, that he had inherited. And they petitioned him, asking a favor against him, against Paul, 
that Festus would summon Paul to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to, Paul, uh, to kill him. Same plot that they had two years earlier, and same people two years later, or at least the same groups. We know that some of the faces had changed. Secular history tells us that the high priest was a different high priest. This was a high priest named Ishmael. But he was still a Sadducee, and the chief men, the elders, were still Pharisees. And they were still a coalition together. Two groups that never agreed on anything except two things. They wanted Jesus dead, and later they wanted Paul dead. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, verse 5, let those who have authority among you go down with me, go down from Jerusalem north to Caesarea, and accuse this man. Let's, let's do this properly in an order. Let's have a hearing to see if there's any fault in him. Long story less long, Festus says, yeah, request denied. He's willing to be conciliatory up to a point. Hey, if you've got charges, by all means, bring the charges, but let's do it at my place. Let's have a proper trial where I can have my advisors with me, and I probably still need to unpack. Notice, by the way, and this, this, is, this is sort of important, Festus doesn't know that they're planning to kill Paul. You have to read it slowly to, to, to catch that. The Jewish leaders were asking, hey, do us a favor, send Paul to Jerusalem so that we can try him in our court. They planned to kill Paul before he even got to Jerusalem. They didn't tell Festus that part. But Festus still, even not knowing that, still says no dice. Not going to do it. Not going to bring Paul to Jerusalem. You come up to Caesarea. A little bit of God's providential hand. Festus is, is furthering God's plan without even knowing it. Paul got to Caesarea by God's providential hand. God arranged for Paul's nephew to find out about the first assassination plot. He got there by divine hand, and, and, and he's still being protected by, by providence, by God's hand. And when he'd remained among them more than 10 days, when Festus had hung out in Jerusalem for more than 10 days, he went down to Caesarea. He went back home, and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. Sitting on the judgment seat, which was basically a, a, a chair on an elevated platform, not that different than, than in our courtrooms, where the judge sits a little bit higher than everybody else. And, and, and he sat on his official chair in the official room so that everyone would know this was an official proceeding. And when it come, when Paul was brought before Festus, verse 7, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which, small detail, they could not prove. Probably the same complaints that they'd had two years earlier. The accusations hadn't changed. Crimes against Israel, crimes against God, crimes against Rome. They had the same charges as two years earlier. Paul had the same answers as two years earlier. Not guilty, not guilty, and wait, yeah, not guilty. Verse 8, he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple of God, nor against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, because he knew that they cost his predecessor his job, answered Paul and said, would you be willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me? 
concerning these things. He's flailing around for a compromise is what he's doing. Paul, Paul let, let me just float something here. What if the trial's in Jerusalem? But instead of the Sanhedrin judging you, it'll be me judging you, and I'll protect your rights as, as a Roman citizen. Okay, seems, you know, elegant kind of a compromise. The reality is it was fairly gutless. Because if Festus actually wanted to preside, preside over the, the trial, the proceedings, there was no legitimate reason to move it. Which leads us to suspect Festus had no intention of officiating, of, of presiding over the trial anyway. He, it was just something he threw out to get Paul to go along with the move to Jerusalem because Paul could veto it. Under Roman law, Festus couldn't change the venue of this proceeding without Paul's permission. And Paul says, uh-uh. <laughs> That's admittedly a bit of speculation. That, that Festus wasn't planning on keeping his word. The thing is, Luke always falls all over himself to, to represent Romans, and particularly Roman officials, as good guys. Have you noticed? I think we've talked about it. There's, there's, there's some contextual clues. There's, there's a school of thought that says that Luke's writing, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts together, were... Luke's deposition, his, his affidavit, his testimony that, that was sent before, uh, before Paul to Rome. That was standard procedure under Roman law. Paul, Paul in a moment is going to appeal to Caesar. His trial is going to get moved to Rome. And, and so the Roman courts would say, okay, well, send along in writing your case. And it's possible that that's what Luke is doing, why he's recording this. Well, if it's a Roman official that's going to preside over Paul's fate, you don't want to go out of your way to offend them. Same way that Festus isn't going out of his way to offend the Jewish leadership. So re regardless, Luke doesn't comment on, on Festus's motive or, or his heart. He just says he made this proposal. But Paul immediately rejects it. He said, verse 10, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. To the Jews I've done no wrong, as you very well know, so there's no reason to move me back to Jerusalem. Festus, come on, you're the new guy, but you know that much. For if I'm an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I don't object to dying. Because A, that would be justice, and B, to live as Christ, to die as gain. If I got to die, I'll die. But the thing is, there's nothing in these things of which these men accuse me. And if, and if there's nothing in these things, then no one can deliver me to them. If they have no witness, they have no evidence. If they have no evidence, they have no case. If they have no case, then you have no basis to send me back to Jerusalem, whether you come along or not. I'm done. Forget it. I appeal to Caesar. Paul, once again, exercising his rights under Roman law. He had a right not to accept the change in venue that Festus proposed, verse 9. And he had a right as a Roman citizen, if he felt like he wasn't getting a fair shake in any Roman court, to have the case brought before the emperor himself. That was established in Roman law in, in, in nascent form, in, in its preliminary form, 600 years earlier. And that, case, that, that law had gradually evolved and become solidified. By the time Paul is having this conversation, that was well-established legal principle. 
that if he appealed to Caesar, it was out of Festus's hands. There was nothing Festus could, literally nothing he could do except acquiesce to Paul's demand. And so verse 12, then Festus, when he conferred with the council, not the Sanhedrin, but his own advisors, do I understand right? We've got to let him do this, right? Yeah, we've got to let him do it. He answered, verse 12, you've appealed to Caesar? Okay, well, to Caesar you shall go. Which at first blush, to you and me reading this, maybe seems impulsive on Paul's part. Maybe seems like the kind of decision that he makes hastily and is later going to regret. Because when we talk about Caesar in 60 AD, who are we talking about? Nero. And if you don't know anything else about Nero, you know that he was no friend to Christians. He was notorious for persecuting Christians. Interesting thing, though, not yet. The persecution that he was famous for, notorious for, the persecution of the church that we associate with Nero didn't start for four more years. And secular history tells us that the debauchery and depravity that that Nero indulged in, that had only maybe just begun. Something happened in his life, something sent him off the deep end, and and he really began to to indulge uh, his lusts End of 59, beginning of 60. So that was a new thing. What's the point? The point is that the Nero we know from history isn't the Nero that Paul expected to face. But even if he were, even if Nero was, was, was full-blown Christian persecuting madman, what were, Paul, what, were, what were his options? I mean, even if he doesn't know specifically about the assassination plot we read about in verse 3, he knew it was the same coalition bringing the same charges with the same animosity, the same anger, the same bitterness. Not a big intuitive leap to conclude the last time that they were all together, they tried to kill him. Probably this time they're going to try to kill him too. So does he press forward to an uncertain fate, or does he let himself be dragged backwards to what had, he had to be relatively certain would mean his death. I, I think maybe I pick possibly good over definitely bad. Besides which, what did Paul know? Because we never want to trade what we know for what we don't know, right? What did Paul know? He knew at the very beginning of his ministry back in Acts 9 that God had called him to be a witness for him before Jews, Gentiles and kings. And he knew that for two years, more than two years, God had been talking to him, speaking to him about ministry that he had for him in Rome. Acts 23.11, the same night he heard about the assassination plot. So you've got maybe good or definitely bad. You've got Rome, which he knew was something that God had called him to, or not Rome. So Paul said Rome. It's another example of something that we talked about a couple, three weeks ago. Paul cooperating with God. God had promised Paul that he'd be his witness in Rome. When God says something, it's God promising something. And Paul said, okay. So I'm going to see how God brings this about. He didn't strive to bring that promise to fruition. He didn't strive to make it happen. He didn't appeal to Caesar first chance he got. He didn't stand before Felix two years earlier and say, forget you, 
get me in front of us. No, he was content to sit tight for two years. But when it came down to a binary choice, you're either going to Rome or you're going back to Jerusalem. You're either going before the emperor or you're going back to the Sanhedrin. Paul said, well, okay, at this point I can either stand inert or I can act on the best understanding I have of God's will for my life and trust that if I've got it wrong, God is capable of overriding me. It's okay to pray like that. It's okay to choose like that because life forces some choices upon us. Sometimes we just, we just take the bull by the horns because we feel like we've got to do something. We've got to make something happen. That's not often the case, not nearly as often as we think that it is. But there are times where we need to zig or zag. It's up or down, it's left or right, it's stay or go. And when life forces those choices upon us, it's okay to say, God, here's my best understanding. This is, this is what I think accords with your character. This is what I think is consistent with your word. This, this lines up with the things that you've shown me. This is other-centered. This is you glorifying. And if I've got it wrong, close the door. That's not only an, an okay thing to pray. That's a good thing to pray. So, so Paul, I'm sure, prays along those lines, and God answers by closing the door a little. He doesn't ship Paul off to Rome straight away. Verse 13, turns out Paul has a king to stand before before he even gets to Rome. He's got a king to talk to before he even has a chance to address Nero. After some days, verse 13, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. So who's this now? King Agrippa is Herod Agrippa II. Dad, Herod Agrippa I, was the Herod who put Peter in jail, was the Herod who, who executed James back in Acts 12. Herod Agrippa II, his father's uncle, was Herod Antipas, who executed John the Baptist, who officiated over Jesus' trial. His father's grandfather, so his great-grandfather, was Herod the Great, who tried to kill Jesus when Jesus was an infant. So, so this king, Agrippa, is a Herod and comes from a long line of Herod, comes from a long line of really bad guys. And he's accompanied by Bernice, who's Bernice, his sister, who's also his lover. I don't make the news, I just report it. Her official title was Consort which is just sort of a polite veneer. Yeah, they're sisters and they sleep, the brother and sister and they sleep together and we don't talk. The more, the more you dig into the Herods, the yuckier it gets. This Herod, Agrippa II, was not king over Judea. He was technically king of Chalcis, little tiny province north of Israel. But because he was a Herod, because he came from this family, Rome considered him an expert in Judaism, and he'd been given authority in Judea, not over Judea, but, but specific authority in Judea, in Jerusalem, to oversee all things related to the temple, including he got to appoint the high priest, which doesn't make sense, but that's the way that Rome wanted it, and that's the way the priesthood agreed to allow it, Herod Agrippa II abused that authority thoroughly, but, but, but all of that made him a useful resource to Festus, because Festus is just beginning to wrap his head around this very unusual people group that he's been given charge over. So when they'd been there many days, verse 14, when 
Agrippa and his, and his sister had been there for a while, getting to know the new guy. Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, you know, I, I've got something that I could really use your opinion on. There's a certain man left, a prisoner by Felix, thank you, Felix, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me, even when I was in Jerusalem, asking for a judgment against him. Festus had... To, he, need, he had no choice. He had to send Paul to Rome. Paul appealed to Nero. It was out of his hands. But he hadn't sent him yet. He was, he was yeah, I'm, I'm going to get to it. It's going to happen. But he was taking his time probably because he's trying to figure out a good explanation for what he's sending Paul to Rome for. What was the case? He was appealing. What was the case he was appealing? He was saying he wasn't guilty. What were the charges? And Festus goes on to read Agrippa in on all of this. Verse 16, to them, to the Jewish leaders, I answered, so he's, he's retelling what we already read back in verses 4 and 5, it's not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face. That echoes down into our legal system, right? The, the right to confront your accusers. We, we, I'm not going to uh, issue summary judgment until he has the opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him, which is how they all ended up in Caesarea. Therefore, when they'd come together without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat, I called an official hearing and commanded the man to be brought in. But verse 18, when the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things as I supposed Nothing, nothing remotely in proportion to all of the, the strife and drama and angst. The, the, nothing I was expecting. Verse 19, turns out they just had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. Underline that, we're going to come back. And because I was uncertain of such questions, Festus is the new guy. He's not familiar with Judaism. He's not familiar with Christianity yet. I asked whether he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. That was verse 9. But when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, technical term for Paul's appeal, I commanded him to be kept until I could send him to Caesar with some kind of plausible explanation. Then Agrippa said to Festus, well, I want to help you, but I'd also like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, Festus answers, you shall hear him. And we'll pause there. Because from this point, it gets into Paul's back and forth with Agrippa, and that keeps going all the way to chapter 26. So we'll save that for next week. But, but also, let's pause there, because Festus just said something really important, and he didn't even know it. Festus, Festus dropped the mic and didn't realize it. Look back at verse 19. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the ones making the accusation, they had some questions. They had some charges they were leveling against Paul about their own religion, about Judaism, and about a certain Jesus whom Paul affirmed to be alive. Paul, in other words, is going around telling people that Jesus rose from the dead. Festus doesn't know it, but he just put his finger on the whole thing, right? The, the, the crux of the matter. Because that's the issue, right? The resurrection. Flip over to Luke 24. Don't worry about keeping a finger. I don't think we're coming back. Go two books to the left. 
Luke 24, I want to put eyes for just a moment on a familiar episode at the very end of Luke's Gospel. Familiar episode that begins Luke 24, verse 13. A familiar episode that begins with the resurrected Jesus appearing to two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. Luke 24, 13. Two disciples are headed home from the feasts, Feast of Passover, Feast of, 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 of Unleavened Bread, Feast of first fruits. They're headed home from Jerusalem to Emmaus, a little village seven miles or so away. They're talking about everything that happened that weekend, the arrest, the trials, the torture, the execution. Verse 15, Jesus catches up with them, but they don't recognize him. Verse 16, their eyes were restrained. So Jesus, incognito, if you will, asked them, what are you talking about? They said, you must be the only one within miles that doesn't know. And they go on to tell him how disappointed they are. Verse 21, we thought he was the one. We thought that he was the Christ. We thought he was going to redeem Israel. But I I, I guess we were wrong. Guess he wasn't the guy. I guess he wasn't the Messiah. Jesus says to them, verse 25, O foolish ones and slow of heart to begin in all the prophets, all that the prophets have spoken. How do you not get this? How do you not see this? Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. How long does it take to walk seven miles? Two and a half, three hours? For two or three hours, Jesus walks them through a study of Jesus in the Old Testament. Starting, I'm sure, in Genesis 3. Jesus is the seed of the woman. Jesus, Genesis 12, is the blessing promised to Abraham. That through Abraham all the nations of the world would be blessed. Jesus is the one who would come out of Judah. Genesis 49. Jesus is pictured in every aspect of the tabernacle, Exodus 29. He's pictured in every one of the sacrifices and offerings, the first ten chapters of Leviticus. He's pictured in every Jewish feast, Leviticus 23. He's the prophet greater than Moses, Deuteronomy 18. He's the one who fought the battle of Jericho in Joshua 6. He's the kinsman redeemer foreshadowed in the entire book of Ruth. He's the son of David greater than David, 2 Samuel 7. He's the good shepherd, Psalm 23. He's the suffering servant, Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. And on and on, and if we have three hours, we could do the whole study. No, we couldn't. Only Jesus could do that study in three hours. But the thing that strikes me about this encounter, Jesus leading a Bible study about Jesus, unpacking all of the types and titles and prophecies of the Old Testament, if you look back at at Luke 24 and look at the disciples who got to sit in on this study, Jesus teaching Jesus... They still weren't convinced. Not until their eyes were open, verse 31. Not until Jesus allowed them to recognize him did they finally understand what Jesus was trying to tell them. Why? Back up to chapter to verse 21. All the types and titles and prophecies in the Old Testament weren't enough to overcome their conviction he couldn't be the Messiah. Messiah was supposed to redeem Israel. 
Messiah was supposed to liberate us from our oppressors, which is still the prevailing view in the Jewish community today. If you can find an observant Jewish person willing to talk about the subject of Messiah at all, which mostly they aren't, but you find a, an observant Jewish person willing to talk about Messiah, and you ask them, hey, how do you know Jesus wasn't the Messiah? What disqualifies him? Why won't you even consider him? The answer will be, Jesus didn't do the things Messiah is supposed to do. Jesus didn't do the things Scripture says he's going to do. Like what? Like build the third temple, Ezekiel 37. Like gather all of the Jews or gather them back to the land, Isaiah 43. Like usher in an era of world peace and prosperity, the end of oppression and disease and hatred. Neither shall nation lift up sword against nation. Neither shall man learn war anymore, Isaiah 2.4. Jesus didn't spread universal knowledge of God, which all of humanity embraced. God will be king over all the world. God will be one. His name will be one, Zechariah 14.9. Jesus didn't do any of that. To which you and I say what? Not yet. Our answer to that, well, those are things that Jesus is going to accomplish in his second coming. He came first as suffering servant. He's going to return as conquering king. But for that to be possible, catch this, for that to even make sense, what has to be true? Jesus has to be alive. If he's going to return, he has to be alive, which means he has to be risen. We make a mistake, and I've said this before. We err when our discussion of Jesus' first coming ends at the crucifixion. Crucifixion is critical, obviously. Jesus' death on the cross purchased our forgiveness. That's why we're here this morning having this conversation. Jesus' blood paid for our sin. But without the resurrection, family, Without the resurrection, how would we know that? On the cross, Jesus said, paid in full. Without the resurrection, would we have any way of knowing that God the Father agreed? I rented an apartment once, and, and when it came time to move, he and I were, the, the landlord and I were still squabbling over some things that he had said that he would pay for that I ended up paying for, some repairs that were the landlord's responsibility under the, under the lease and just under common sense. He never reimbursed me for them, so I just took that amount out of, out of the final month's rent check. And he disagreed, and we ended up going to court. I, I, wrote on the, I literally wrote on the check, paid in full, and he said, I don't accept it. And we ended up litigating over it. How do we know that the Father accepted the check that Jesus wrote? The resurrection. The resurrection proves Jesus' death was acceptable. The resurrection proves Jesus' ministry isn't finished, it's ongoing. And, and, and prophecies of him ruling and reigning are still pending, and all of the promises that he made are still binding. We can trust them, because we can trust him. Jesus told us that's what the resurrection would mean. Flip a couple more books to the left. Go to Matthew 12. 
Jesus says in Matthew 12, and again in Matthew 16, but he says for the first time in Matthew 12, that's what the resurrection is going to mean. Matthew 12, we pick up the story, it's the ongoing debate, could Jesus be the Messiah? People are wondering. Jesus is doing miracles, he's doing healing, he's casting out demons. Maybe, maybe maybe he's him. The scribes and Pharisees say, no, it can't be him. Why not? He's casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. He's casting out demons by by the power of the chief of all of the demons. Jesus says, how does that even make sense? Casting out demons by the Lord of the... Guys, come up with a better answer than that. So Matthew 12, verse 38, some of the scribes and Pharisees went to Jesus saying, well, then then you prove it. Teacher, we want a sign for you. I've been doing signs. We want another sign. Jesus answered, verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. What was the sign of the prophet Jonah? We don't have to guess. Jesus tells us. Verse 40, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then what? And then he won't be in the heart of the earth anymore then he'll do what Jonah did. He'll rise up out of what everybody assumed would be his eternal grave to newness of life. Don't lose the big picture. What did Jesus say? Matthew 12, 39. He said, you're asking for a sign. You're asking for a miracle. You're asking for proof. You shouldn't be, but you are. So here's the one I'm going to give you, and it's the only one that you need. I shouldn't need to give you any more signs, but I'm going to give you one. It'll be more than enough. The way that you'll know that I am who I say that I am, if I haven't convinced you already, when I rise from the dead on the third day, the way I'm telling you right now, I'm going to. That's how you know you can believe me. When I die and and am resurrected, that's how you'll know that I mean what I say and I say what I mean. And I do what I say that I mean. How do we know our sins are forgiven? You, you and I who have gone to the cross and asked forgiveness. Jesus said they're forgiven. How do we know we can believe him? He rose from the dead. How do we know that Jesus is always with us? You and I have asked Jesus to be our Savior. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. But how do we know we can believe him? Because he rose from the dead. How do we know that Jesus cares about us, prays for us? You and I who have decided to follow him. He said, I I work all things out for good for those who love me. How do we know that we can believe him? Because he rose from the dead. There's a reason if you go back through the book of Acts and read the testimony of the apostles, read the, the, the teaching of the apostles, Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2. His message on Solomon's porch in Acts 3. His his preaching to the Sanhedrin in Acts 4. Stephen's message in Acts 7, right before he's stoned. Again and again and again, we read an emphasis, not on the death of Jesus only, but on his death and resurrection. The resurrection holds our faith together, family. Without it, Christianity falls apart. And unless we are confident in the resurrection, we fall apart. 
How many promises has God made us to be our strength, to be our rest, to provide for us, to protect us, to answer our prayers, to work things out on our behalf, to deliver us, to love us, and and so much more? How do we know any of those things are true? The days that we feel overwhelmed, how do we know that we can believe them? The nights we feel absolutely alone, how do we know we can trust them? The times that no one understands us, the seasons that just never seem to end for us, how do we know Jesus' promises are still valid for us? Because he told us the resurrection will prove I do what I say I'm going to do. Why does Satan direct so much energy to denying the resurrection? I mean, the world at this point mostly will acknowledge there was a man named Jesus who did die on the cross, but they, they, they make their stand. But he didn't rise from the dead. Because who is Jesus if he doesn't rise from the dead? He's an inspirational teacher. He's a radical reformer. He, he's... Uh, a brilliant philosopher, but he's not God. And we see the result, don't we? The result of not believing the resurrection. Acts 25, we see it in Festus. All through Acts, we see it in the Jewish leadership. Every day we wake up, we see it in the world around us. People who can't see the love that God has for them because they won't see the risen Christ. People who who can't lay hold of God's promises because they can't bring themselves to believe in the resurrection. I think that's another reason, yet another reason, Jesus gave us communion. And we're going to celebrate communion this morning. Jesus tells us, as often as we eat the bread, as often as we drink the cup, do it in remembrance of him. In remembrance of what? His body stabbed Speared, beaten, yes. His blood drained from his body, yes. His lifeless corpse placed in the ground, yes. That same body resurrected three days later, oh yes. We need that last part. We need that last part, and we need to pause periodically. We need to pause, I think, regularly to remember that last part. So we will remember that we can trust the promises Jesus made to us. So that we'll remember why we can trust the promises Jesus made to us. So we will trust the promises that Jesus made to us. But how do I know the resurrection happened? Those doubts grip all of us at times, right? And it's important when when those doubts arise to not run away from them, not be ashamed of them, run toward them. Confront them with truth. How do I know that the resurrection happened? I mean, Paul knew because Paul was there. Paul saw Jesus. Okay, we can know because Paul saw Jesus. And so did a lot of other people. The apostles saw Jesus on several occasions. More than 500 people saw Jesus on just one occasion. 
It was a group of women who saw Jesus on the very first occasion anybody beheld the risen Christ. If you're going to plot a conspiracy, if you're going to, if you're going to hatch a, an outlandish story in the first century, what you don't do is you don't call women to be your first witnesses. That would actually lose you credibility. If this, were, if this were just a fanciful tale, that would be the last thing that they would do. Instead, it was the first thing. Women were the first people to behold the risen Christ. We might not have seen Jesus, but lots of people did. And what happened to them? They were changed. The Holy Spirit came upon them. They were anointed. They were gifted. They were bold. And they went into all the world proclaiming Jesus even when it cost them their lives. There are some who became Christians after the Watergate crisis and, and, and who look back at the Watergate scandal and say, that proves that the resurrection was not a conspiracy. It wasn't a, 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 a work of fiction, something that people ginned up and decided to, a story that they decided to tell. Because everybody likes a good story, but no one is willing to die for one. The Watergate conspirators couldn't, couldn't keep the truth hidden at the threat of being jailed. 12 out of, 11 out of the 12 apostles died, and, and countless other disciples died for their faith. You don't do that for a conspiracy. And, and you know this. We've talked about this. If, 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 if we haven't, if you're new, if this is blowing your mind, I, I'd love to dig into this with you. Because when we're done, you'll see the only way to not believe the resurrection is to choose not to believe the resurrection. The only way to not believe in a risen Christ is to refuse to believe in a risen Christ. The proof is there. And the opportunity is here this morning to remind ourselves that we do believe in a risen Christ. And to remind ourselves that because we do, because we believe that Jesus kept his promise to die in our place and rise on the third day, because we have good reason to believe that, we have good reason to believe he'll keep every other promise. To believe that he does keep every other promise. To believe that he is keeping every other promise he's ever made to us. Father, we are... Walking sacks of doubt, it seems, sometimes. And you know there's a lot of reasons for that. It's our flesh, it's the world, it's our pride. Lord, war with our doubts. Vanquish our feelings with facts. Remind us that you kept the greatest promise anyone has ever made. To die as an innocent for the sins of the guilty and rise on the third day to prove that sacrifice acceptable. Establish that fact in our hearts, Father. 
Not because we want to believe it, but because it's true. As we stand on that truth, as we rest in that truth, Father, may we rest in the truth that you are a promise-keeping God. Your answers are yes and amen. And every promise you've ever made us stands.